0: Welcome to the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Lyon, and I want to thank you for joining me as we explore the world of small grains production and research at Washington State University. In each episode, I speak with researchers from WSU and the USDA ARS to provide you with insights into the latest research on wheat and barley production. If you enjoy the WSU Wheatbeat Podcast, do us a favor and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app and leave us a review while you're there so others can find the show too. My guests today are Dr. Kim Garland Campbell and Dr. Timothy Paulitz. Kim is a research geneticist with the USDA ARS with an adjunct faculty appointment in the WSU Department of Crop and Soil Sciences in Pullman. Kim has been a wheat breeder since 1992 and has been in her current position since 1999. The goals of her project are pre-breeding for wheat disease resistance and club wheat cultivar development. She has the distinction of being the only wheat breeder who has a primary focus on club wheat. Tim is a research plant pathologist with the USDA ARS Wheat Health, Genetics, and Quality Research Unit in Pullman. He joined ARS in 2000 after spending 10 years at McGill University in Quebec as an assistant and associate professor. His research focus is on fungal and nematode root diseases of wheat, barley, and other rotation crops, with an emphasis on the root and crown rotting fungi rhizoctonia, pythium, fusarium, and the nematode heterodera, if I said that correctly, the serial cyst nematode. In the last 10 years, he has investigated the bacterial and fungal communities in the soil and roots of wheat cropping systems using next-generation DNA sequencing. He is currently working on soil health, how microbial communities and microbiomes benefit plant health by protecting against soil-borne pathogens and drought stress. Hello, Kim. Hi, Drew. Hello, Tim. Hi, Drew. So, um... Received the news, uh, sad news here just uh, the other day, that Dr. Bob Allen, retired USDA, ARS wheat breeder in Pullman, uh, died on Sunday, March 28. He was 90 years old. And Tim, it's my understanding that you gave the eulogy at Bob Allen's funeral. I wonder if you can give us kind of a brief history of Bob's life.
1: Yeah, uh, a brief history of, of Bob. And actually, a lot of this is taken out of his obituary, which he wrote himself. Uh, Bob was born in 1931 uh, in Morris, Illinois. Uh, he had an older brother named Tom. His parents ran a furniture store in Morris, but they also had a farm in Wisconsin, a livestock farm. And so Bob grew up on that farm and had a lot of experience in agriculture, uh, did his um uh, Uh, Grade school high school there, and then he actually skipped the last year of high school and enrolled at uh, Iowa State College at the time and got a degree in agriculture Um, and then um, Was also part of the ROTC there uh, Was uh, commissioned as a lieutenant and volunteered for the Korean War and, uh, and then went to Korea uh, and Japan and was a decorated war uh, veteran. He was actually a uh, forward uh, artillery observer during that period of time. So then he came back and by that time he was married and he tells the story that his parents sold the farm and he thinks that was one of the best things that happened for him because that got him uh, moving in agricultural research. So then he got a assistantship at uh, Kansas State College at the time. Uh, and worked with was it Elmer Heine? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Elmer Heine. Elmer Heine uh, in wheat genetics. Uh, graduated in 1958, but even before he finished, he was offered a position here uh, in Pullman with uh, Orville Vogel. Um, and, and he tells a story. At the time, it was all done just by a few phone calls and some tele- telegrams. Uh, none of that long uh, process of uh, interviews and vetting and everything. They they knew who, who they wanted. So, Bob came here in 1957 as a a geneticist and club wheat breeder. And I'm going to skip over a lot because we're going to cover that uh, later on. But just to say, he spent a 40 year career with ARS, uh, 24 years as a uh, research leader. And he had a tremendous impact at the time. Um, He released uh, 12 cultivars or varieties on his own, and then I think collaborated with another 16 or so. And the economic value of those uh, varieties from the time they were released till he retired uh, was over uh, five billion, that's with a B, dollars in uh, in income to the growers. Uh, At the time he retired, his varieties were grown on 78% of the acreage in Washington, uh, which is incredible. And then you go forward another 10 years, Around 2006, they were still being grown on 70% of the acreage, and it wasn't, and then you go to 2010, uh, it dropped down to about 21% of the acres. But his uh, most famous uh, variety, Madsen, which we'll also talk about in a minute, uh, did not fall off the top 10 list until just last year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, 2019. Until just about a year ago. So he had a tremendous impact on on the industry. Uh, He had 24 uh, graduate students from all over the world, was very active in um, education, uh, very active with Crops and Soils Department over the years, uh, very supportive of a lot of their efforts. Um, and then just a, one final thing. I've got to know Bob uh, when I came here in 2000. So I said that Bob retired in uh, 1996, but he never did retire. So he would come every morning to his office at Johnson Hall, uh, have coffee with some of the retired professors about 10.30, and then join a group of us uh, in the lunchroom. Um, There was myself, there was a couple of retired uh, plant pathology professors, uh, Jack Rogers, uh, Lee Hadwiger, and then uh, Dave Weller and Linda Thomas Shaw who, who are and still working for ARS. And we would talk about uh, just about everything, uh, trying to solve the problems of the world. We'd talk about religion, politics, uh, cougar uh, athletics, um, university administration, farming, weather. Uh, And so I really got to know a lot about Bob over that 20 years. And and we basically, uh, that that group was going right up until uh, covid and so that's where I really got to know Bob. Uh, and again, he never retired. He, he bought a farm uh, in the early 1970s south of Pullman, about 160 acres, built a house, was actively engaged in farming, but he would also breed wheat in his backyard. And so he had plots. He was developing germplasm right up until the very end. Uh, he had some plots he put out last fall. Uh, he had a barn uh, where he vernalized his uh, uh seedlings in an old refrigerator um, so was actively working on a club wheat book which he uh, released a few years ago uh, so again, uh, Bob was active uh, right up until the very end. so that's kind of a thumbnail sketch of kind of bob in in summary
0: sounds like he found something he really loved and just went through life with that love that's uh that's what they say you're supposed to do, but very few of us succeed at that. Thank you very much for that. That the summary, Kim. He was a, he was a um, club wheat breeder. Um, how did uh, Bob influence the work that you do in your breeding program?
2: Well, he had a tremendous influence. I think actually he was instrumental in uh, in them deciding to actually hire me rather than some one of the other candidates. <laughs> he said, "You got to take her. She's the wheat breeder." You know, and and uh, I first met Bob when I interviewed. Um, but because he was around all that time, and I was actually a part of the lunch bunch in the last few years, too, uh, he was always a part of, of my life here. And I would mention Bob in every uh, talk I gave uh, routinely because he left me with such a legacy of germplasm. He had worked really, really hard, along with Orville Vogel, with um, adult plant resistance to stripe rust and uh um, other diseases. He worked very hard on soil borne diseases like, uh, I, spot. And, um, so it was hard for me to talk about anything coming out of the program without mentioning Bob. And finally, I think it was in 2015 after I'd been here for, for about 15 years, he said, you know, Kim, you don't have to mention me in everything. Some of this work is actually from you, you know? (laughs) And so he was a very humble guy. So, um, uh, and um, I think probably his biggest contribution, as, as uh, Tim mentioned, was the development of Madsen wheat, where he incorporated um, genes from a wild relative of wheat uh, that had been crossed to a French variety and then crossed that into first club wheats, but then into local soft white wheats. Um, and he was, he was looking at resistance to eye spot, and he always said the reason why he even heard about this wheat to begin with was due to an open bar at one of the quantitative genetics conferences in Columbia, Missouri, where he got to talking to the French wheat breeder who had developed the original line, um, who gave him some seeds. And then uh, Bob incorporated those into Madsen. Uh, released Madsen, which Tim's gone through its impact on agriculture here. But it also had a a second uh, gene for stripe rust resistance that is still extremely important. And uh, his work developing that germplasm, which he shared with um, other wheat breeders in this region, uh, got transferred into the Great Plains kind of by accident uh, because of a mix-up in, in what they thought they were looking at in the field. But that gene has been very, very important in the Great Plains as well, and it has other resistances on it that are important. So Bob, um, either advertently or inadvertently, contributed tremendously to Western wheat breeding in the U.S. So.
0: Okay, so he left you with a lot of good germplasm. Did he have a philosophy of wheat breeding that he shared with you, or what, what did you take from his program, if, if anything?
2: Um, well, one thing, he, uh, he got burned kind of early on. When, when he first got here, Orville said two things. He said, take over the club program because I don't really like club wheat. That was Orville. and So <laughs> Bob did that. So he really kept club wheat alive in this region, and it's still a very important economic product. But he also, Orville asked him to um, figure out what the genetics were behind the reduced height genes that that Orville was famous for, the semi-dwarf genes. And Bob's always said that was one of the easiest things he ever did. It's just a simple two-gene trait, you know, dominant two-gene trait and, or semi-dominant. And, um, uh, and Bob brought this real um, genetic uh, uh, emphasis on the work that he did. And so when he started working with stripe rust, he would pick one gene at a time and move it into... Uh, material, and the genes kept getting overcome by the pathogen even before they were released. So uh, probably in the 70s, he decided he'd start working with adult plant resistance to stripe rust and incorporating, purposely avoiding single gene resistance and incorporating a lot of smaller effect genes into material. And he did all of this without molecular markers, which to the the geneticists out there, I, I think you really have to give kudos to the older guys who were able to do some of this work without some of the tools we have today. Um, and But because of that, his philosophy was that you never wanted to get anything too pure. And he was famous for having released a couple of multi lines one was called Crew and one was called Rely, um, where he combined a lot of different sources of stripe rust resistance. Um, into back crosses to a common parent and then put them all together in a cultivar. And Crew was really a mess. I mean, he had all kinds of tall and short and everything in that line. But Rely was a really good looking line. It was widely grown when I got here. And um, so as we... Uh, moved along, you know, when I came came in and started talking about doubled haploids and genetic purity, he'd always warn me, no, no, you don't want to get things too pure, you know. <laughs> so I think that was the overarching thing that he said.
1: Yeah, and, and okay. I'll point out that Rely was one of the first examples of a multi-line, and the idea was instead of having—you uh, actually make a mixture— of of ones that have different resistance genes, but they all have the same agronomic. Um, and, and that was really revolutionary at the time, the idea that instead of planting thousands of acres of one gene that would be easy for the rust pathogen to overcome, you, you put together these mixtures. Uh, and so I think that was one of his um, unrecognized uh, contributions. Yeah, I really do think so. That's yeah. something
0: you see now. Some companies are selling two and three different cultivars in a mix mm-hmm. with kind of the same idea although it's hard to match them up right with uh, maturities and some other things right the time. yeah
2: but they and they do it with um like the original bt resistant corn was released as a mixture of bt resistant and non-resistant right. for the same reason actually so
0: okay tim uh, what do you see as bob's greatest contributions to wheat production in the region uh, nationally and, and even internationally.
1: Yeah, maybe I'll start out with international, because I think this is an untold story. Um, you know, everybody knows about Norman Borlaug and the Green Revolution, but not many people know that uh, Orville and Bob were really part of that. Um, you know, so that semi-dwarf gene originally came from a line out of um, Japan after World War II, and uh, and Orville worked on it for a number of years. Uh, it turns out, of course, if you reduce the height of the wheat, you can apply more nitrogen Uh and get higher yields and so at the time wheat was what four or five feet tall and now if it's three feet tall it'd be uh, a lot and uh, norman was a wheat breeder with the rockefeller foundation which later became simmet and so they they worked a lot together Um, he got that those lines Uh, bob was instrumental in understanding the genetics behind it Uh, And then Orville released the first semi-dwarf lines probably in the early 60s with gains and new gains. And uh, Bob tells a story that Norman did not believe the yield increases that they were getting. So Norman came up here and actually visited the growers to really verify what was happening. And so that technology he took uh, to Mexico, uh, incorporated it into their material, and then uh, took it to India. Uh, to the Punjab, the breadbasket of, of India, and uh, it was incorporated there. And the same technology became part of rice uh, at the International Rice Research Institute in the Philippines. And, and, and Norman won a Nobel Prize for this in 1970 for the Green Revolution and for preventing massive starvation that was predicted at the time, because of the population increase, um, so again, uh, Bob was a huge part of that whole uh, green revolution. So, so again, uh, impacted uh, the lives of mi- millions of people. Um, and then uh, on the level of the Pacific Northwest, as Kim mentioned, uh, Madison, um, you know, I think uh, was it was a. Is, was and still is a very excellent variety and the durability of that that's something that could be released 33 years later is still uh still being grown um and so um kim mentioned the eye spot resistance which was revolutionary at the time uh growers used to have to spray a lot of fungicides to control that and this gene has been introduced and so it saved the growers a lot of um of, uh, of fungicides. Uh, a, f- a few other things, and I think Bob is really unrecognized for uh, a lot of things. One, he figured out uh, what the mechanism behind that reduced height uh, gene was. He-, he linked it with gibberellic acid, which is a, a plant hormone which is involved in uh, stem elongation. And it turns out these are uh, gibberellin-insensitive mutants. And uh, so understanding that uh, really opened that up. Uh, Another thing that uh, Bob is unrecognized for is I think he was probably the first um, marker-assisted selection, Mm -hmm. uh, which Mm -hmm. is a tool now that that, uh, breeders uh, take for granted. They use DNA to look for different traits and use that to select. Well, they had developed an isozyme method that would be a marker for the uh, eye-spot resistance gene. Uh, and he also incorporated that. Um, so, you, you know, so I think for the Pacific Northwest and then, as, as Kim mentioned, the impact of club wheats are still a, um, pretty important in this region. Um, so I think he, he made a lot of contributions there. And the other thing about Bob was he he was a farmer. You know, he had his own farm, grew up on a farm. And I think he really understood uh, the growers and what they needed um, and I think that was another, another part of his uh, success. So, um, again, I think very un- under-recognized, but certainly uh, made a lot of contributions economically uh, to, the, to the Pacific Northwest.
0: Kim, do you have anything you want to add to that?
2: Yeah, I just I kind of want to amplify on it because that use of that isozyme uh, for the eye spot resistance gene in Madsen you know, it allowed us to move the eye spot resistance gene around very easily. Not only in the program, but it, it it's led to Madsen being a parent of most of the soft white wheat varieties that we currently grow, either a, a parent or a grandparent, um, because uh, that that resistance was so critical. And it's really a resistance that's not only critical on the Palouse, but in we find eye spot throughout the whole wheat growing region in in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and, uh, and then, as Tim mentioned, with the identifying that gibberellic acid was involved in the reduced height phenotype, it, it kind of opened up this whole area of research because along with reducing the height, the, there were some negatives that were associated with that trait, one of which the seed germination is a little lower, um, the, the uh, uh, emergence from deep sowing is lower. But because we understood that it is related to gibberellic acid. We have uh, we know that we need to develop ways to work around uh, the direct effect of that particular gene, and we know from other species like Arabidopsis that there are workarounds in plants. Um, and so it's allowed um, it's allowed us to really investigate these different avenues, um, and you see a lot of that in the. Washington Winter Wheat Program now with lines like LTAN and Otto, which actually are semi dwarf varieties, but they have very good emergence and they um, they come up from deep sowing. So, so I think uh, not only as a breeder, but as a sci- as a uh, very critical scientist, he he had a lot of effect. And then the other area is um, he not only worked on RHT one and two, which are these. Um, kind of the shorthand names of these original semi-dwarf genes. But he worked a lot on developing near isogenic lines uh, for all of the um, reduced height genes that have been identified. And actually, that's what he's still working on. He kind of left me instructions the last time I saw him, (laughs) like, these are the crosses that need to be made. And uh, and he worked a lot on examining the effects of the different vernalization genes and developing near isogenic lines for those. And especially those that work on the reduced height genes has been used a lot internationally, and especially in um, Australia by CSIRO, who've taken his germplasm and um, and uh, uh, you know further characterized it and I and moved it into their material and identified the combinations that really work in uh, really dry environments in Australia. So,
0: thanks, Kim. Uh, Tim, what would you say you appreciate most about uh, Bob?
1: Well, there's a, a few characteristics that, uh, that I really appreciate. First of all, as I mentioned before, his passion for the science in wheat breeding. It was not a 9-to-5 job. It was not something he retired after the age of 65. You know, he kept working on that uh, th- throughout his life. So that's that's one thing that I uh, recognize. Another thing is Bob was, um, as Kim mentioned, a bit humble, and uh, I, I, I think he was— um, underrecognized and you know it wasn't until later in his life when he received that award i think it was in 2017 uh, the uh, lifetime award of the national plant breeders that i think people really recognized uh, the contributions that he had uh, he was not a self promoter uh, a lot of times scientists that make big impacts also have big egos and bob certainly didn't have that uh, he was very collaborative um, throughout his entire career Another um, thing about Bob, he, he was he was generous, uh, generous in sharing his knowledge uh, with graduate students and and the, the subsequent generations. Graduate students could always go to his office and chat with him, or breeders or anybody else. Uh, he, he would share that knowledge. He was also very generous in his support for WSU Department of uh, Crops and Soils, Spillman Farm. I think there was actually a named uh, seminar series after him. Um, Another thing about Bob is a great sense of humor. Uh, He always had a lot of good jokes, Um, devoted to his family. Uh, He always talked about Carrie and his family. Um, He had four children, uh, numerous grandchildren, great-grandchildren, he would always uh, talk about them. Uh, Another thing about Bob, and maybe this is intrinsic to being a good uh, plant breeder, and that is curiosity and the power of observation. Um, you know, to be able to look at thousands and thousands of plots year after year and be able to recognize that one character uh, that, you're, that you're after and being able to pull that out. Um, another thing about Bob, of course, is persistence. Um, uh, and I think that's another characteristic of a plant breeder to take that long-term uh, approach. You know, in science, it's, it's kind of like flavor of the month you know, a new technology comes along and everybody jumps on that and then it's hot and then they move on to the next one and, and they, they uh, can't really see the forest through the trees. And Bob was one that could, could take that long-term approach um, and really and work for something, you know, for, for 40 years. Um, and then the final thing, um, as I mentioned before, um, because Bob came from a farming background, had his own farm, I really think he had a rapport with the growers uh, that they knew that, uh, that what he was putting out was really something that would, would benefit them. Uh, so those are kind of all the characteristics that you know I think uh, uh, made Bob such a great scientist, a great plant breeder and also uh, a great person so I think he will uh, certainly be missed. Kim, you have anything to add?
2: Yeah Tim, Tim got a lot of it he was a he was a great mentor to me. Um, uh, very, very generous and I, I would send almost all of my students by to talk to him. I did learn early on that if you if he made kind of what seemed like an offhand comment, I should listen to it. One time I was talking about these two RHT genes and I said something like, it looks like RHT1 is slightly less effective. And he goes, yeah, some people have noticed that. And then later I found out he'd written about three papers on the topic and developed a bunch of germplasm and tested it. And the same thing happened just a couple of years ago when I went to him and I said, uh, have you ever done any work on subcrown internodes? And which is the part of the wheat plant that is below the soil surface. It's between the seed and where the, um, where the roots actually start to develop. And, um, and he said, uh, or it's actually between the seed and where the crown develops. Sorry, and he said, um, "I did a little work on that in the past, and again, I found out he'd advised a whole he'd advised a graduate student on the subject. He developed multiple populations, and he had published three papers on the topic. And um, and so I I learned really quick not to not to discount anything he he said at lunch, you know, <laughs> especially if it involved wheat breeding. I know so. it was a
0: disappointment to me. I think. Kim, you suggested several years ago that I get Bob on uh-huh. the WSU Wheat yeah. Beat podcast, and I, I tried several times. Thought I had him once, and then I think I think he caught a, a bad cold or something, mm-hmm. so we delayed it, and and just never got him on. And I really regret not doing that. But I really appreciate you two coming in and talking a little bit about Bob because I think he's he, he was a treasure for this part of the world, and mm-hmm. and uh, I think it's good to look back and remember what all he brought to to wheat growers in this in the Pacific Northwest. Thank yeah. you very much for your time. Hey,
2: thanks, thanks, Drew. Thanks.
0: Thanks for joining us and listening to the WSU Wheat Beat Podcast. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. If you have questions or topics you'd like to hear on future episodes, please email me at drew.lion. That's L-Y-O-N at WSU.edu. You can find us online at smallgrains.wsu.edu and on Facebook and Twitter at WSU Small Grains. The WSU Wheat Beat Podcast is a production of Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. I'm Drew Lyon. We'll see you next time. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement.